Ah, uh, ladies and gentlemen, especially ladies. Hey, ladies. I am currently recording during International Women's Day. So, big ups to the women all out there. Invest in womanism, please. In other words, public enemies, Chuck D, bring the noise. FM Podcast Network, I am Charlie Taylor, and this is What's Good. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, hope you've all had a good week in the circumstances. Yeah, man, it's been a pretty decent week, pretty decent week, can't complain. Um, Sorting out stuff uh, for just the coming weeks and months for me personally. Um, I've got a solid seven-day stretch going on um, late March. Uh, got a few shows. I've only booked two so far, but there's like at least two more that I want to get. Um, I'm just uh, weighing on a particular point uh, so I can just uh, figure out if I should just get a, you know, like a, you know, like a weekly train ticket because I don't feel the need. I don't want to pay for, you know, ticket, ticket. Ticket, ticket. I'm gonna just see what a see what a weekly thing is. See what that is uh, saying. I'm imagining it's extortionate as fuck. I am not looking forward to that price tag. Um, but hey, man, I'm here. So uh, at minimum, I'm going to I'm going to London twice. Um, but uh, I do want to I do want to hit a few more shows. Um, there's a couple of exhibitions I want to go to. There's actually one. Ironically, I went to the Sachi Gallery with my pops for his birthday um, last year for the Bob Marley exhibition, and there's actually another one in the Sachi Gallery around, funny enough, around the same time, right? And uh, uh, and that looks really good as well. So I want to hit that up. And uh, if you joined me on an episode a few, like a month or so ago, um, I was talking about um, a exhibition going down at Ravens Row. In uh, I think it's Shoreditch or Spitalfields. I forget which 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 is which. Um, Shoreditch, I think is anyway. But um, still, uh, Ravens Row, and um, yeah, well, I still want to hit that up. And uh, as as I believe it's free, so you know, <laughs> might as well just spend the day. You know what I mean? Just uh, just uh, try and get some things in. Um, but yeah, man, past that can't complain. Really can't complain. Uh, my sister asked me, um, if I could um take photos um of uh, my well her best friend at her best friend's wedding and i was just like um <laughs> uh, i don't know because you know if you guys have seen my photos um clt dot photography at dot uh, com made dot com um that was sales and mud up so let me, see, <laughs> let me actually try and say it correctly this time clt dash photography dot carbonmade.com there you go go hit that up if you want to see my photography so far and um even when that said like you know well i'm looking through them right now literally as, as i speak and um my thing about it is that you know i take i do photography as a you know just as a love for it right and i don't get paid for any of it you know what i mean i just go to places i take my camera with me and i see what i get right um but you know, that's someone's wedding, you know what I mean? Like, 
I, I that 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 just um that's a whole different ball game, you know what I mean? So uh, yeah, it's it makes me nervous a little bit, just a little bit. Um, but I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna do it. I think I'm gonna do it. Um, I'm, I've been talking to my I'm I've been talking myself into it recently. Um, so we shall we shall see. Um, and I'll but I, I don't know. I might keep you posted. I might not. Who knows? But anyway, let's get into the show. Um, we have a politics, uh, TV, music, and film. Um, so nearly, nearly a traditional Oscar episode right there. <laughs> oh gosh, I, I do, I do, I don't miss it all. To be honest, like um, having that rigid, uh, what was it? TV and film, uh, music, life, and sports. That was it. Yeah, I, I kept myself to those four categories and now I can't imagine doing it again you know what I mean so I'm really glad I shed that um as a additional note um I will have a interview uh drop in in the next couple of weeks I've already done it so um, it's already compiled I just need to edit in it edit it and do all the thing other things um and uh, yeah that'll probably drop the same week I'm hitting up London um so I'll keep you guys posted on that whenever it drops um, I do have a thirty questions as well, you know what I mean. Um, so I'm not, sh- but I'm not sure if I want to compile them, keep keep them, compile them for you know December, like I did last December, or just drop them as I get them along with the interviews. Um, I'm still thinking about it, um, so we'll see how it goes. But anyway, with that said, formalities before we begin. Uh, email. Uh, socials, writing, all that in the full show notes, as well as the music, and of course, all of the other podcasts under the 5EPN, uh, in search of source, just dropped as I record today, um, as it's in Women's History Women's History Month, um, we are doing, uh, we are focusing on uh, female authors, journalists, um, music journalists, of course, uh, throughout, uh, throughout the month for ISOS, and obviously that's um, considering it's bi-weekly, so that's... Um, Maybe two, definitely two, I guess three episodes. Let me check the calendar. So, um, no, two episodes. There you go. So, you know, six articles. Um, they'll all be uh, dedicated to women. Um, oh, well, done by women, covered by us. Um, and also DITD. Uh, we are doing uh, our usual Women's History Month uh, retrospectives. We have just dropped an episode um, on the First Lady of No Limit, Mia X. And next week will be Miss Melody, um, who was heavily affiliated with uh, Keras One and Boogie Down Productions. So if you're interested in any of that, feel free in the full show notes, all of the shows, as well as the, all the uh, serials as well in there for you to spin. With that said, let the beat drop. Let's get into the show. In a week where jazz jazz saxophonist uh, Wayne Shorter dies aged 89, um, I haven't spun much of uh, Wayne Shorter, but I did um, spin, I think he did a collaboration project last year, if I remember correctly, um, he was with uh, Terry Lyon Carrington uh, for a, uh, and uh, Leo uh, Genovese and Esperanza Spalding, I think that was him as well in, in that mix, um, but I have, I have, I've spun a recent Wayne Shorter project, I know that far. Um, but yeah, he's yeah definitely jazz legend. Um, R.I.P. Um, definitely one I'm going to listen to um, in the future. 
Uh, Matt Hancock's WhatsApp texts are leaked, and um, boy, have they been fun. Um, not going to cover that here, unfortunately. I'm, I'm fine with that, thank you. Uh, Boris Johnson has put his father Stanley forward for a knighthood, as if um, knighthoods weren't um, just, you know, dick-stroking events. Um, anyway, um, especially when politicians put forward that, well, PMs put forward it on a list, um, as if that wasn't a, just a dick-stroking, um, scratch-back, uh, back-scratching exercise um, already. His fucking father, like, Dude has zero shame. Literally zero shame. Uh, 70-year-old Charles Bronson goes for parole hearing. Um, I think that's still ongoing. I didn't realise he hasn't murdered anyone, um, which is crazy. Um, I saw a few tweets, you know, comparing, you know, him being in prison for nearly 50 years and, you know, politicians haven't been to jail, you know what I mean? Um, So I'm wondering why they can make policies that kill people. Um... And had direct effects to people's lives, and then, you know, Charles Bronson what threatens a, threatens a, a Nardine or something, or takes a Nardine hostage or something like that. I forget the story. Um, and goes to jail for nearly fifty years. It's, I don't know. Obviously, he's done more stuff. You know, been in fights and stuff like that. But he hasn't killed anyone, which is fascinating uh, factoid. Um, and lastly, I um, mean, this is the topic of the first segment. Uh, UK government announces immigration overhaul. Uh, which I wasn't really th- um, too enticed to look into. But I feel I, I had a change of heart and um, I found something that would um, hopefully, you know, paint the picture of what's going on um, and the potential uh, ramifications of it. By no means is this a comprehensive um, deep dive or anything like that. I mean, this is what's good. Over, uh, as, as you know, I'm not doing long reads or anything um, at this point, um, uh, for this episode anyway, for regular episodes, I do try and do long reads, but I haven't done I haven't done one in a, in a minute. Um, so yeah, you know, but this is I think this will be a good primer uh, for you guys if you are interested in in th- in hearing about this, and um, obviously encourage fully encourage you to do uh, more reading on the subject uh, wherever you are. Um, so this is uh, via the conversation uh, is uh, written by. Helen O'Neyans, great name, uh, who is Associate Professor at Nottingham Law School at Nottingham Trent University. Uh, shout out Nottingham. And uh, it's called Illegal Immigration Bill Does More Than, quote, Push the Boundaries, unquote, of International Law. Which is, that's fun, isn't it? How, how fun, how fun to introduce a bill that may push the boundaries of international law, you know what I mean? Just a little bit of international law breaking. That's, yeah, it's fine, it's fine, it's fine, it's fine, it's fine. Let's get into this. UK government has introduced its latest effort to deter small boat migration by vowing to remove all those who arrive in the UK illegally by any route. The illegal migration bill, if enacted, will apply retrospectively, uh, meaning that those who have arrived even before the bill's passage will be subject to detention and arbitrary removal without a legal remedy. The Home Secretary, Suella Braverman, Braverman, uh, uh, immediately recognised the bill was likely to, quote, pushed the boundaries of international law, unquote, and refused to make a statement of compliance with the Human Rights Act 1998. On closer inspection, it does not merely push the boundaries. It rides roughshod over... Oh, so it's roughshod. I thought it was roughshod. Okay, that's something new. Excuse me. Um, over domestic law, common law, and the UK's international human rights obligations. 
The government's justification for turning people away from seeking asylum is that people who have travelled by boat will have passed through other safe countries, where they should have claimed asylum first. <sighs> I hate this. I hate that part of the conversation because people that come here, they come here for a very specific for specific reasons. One of them being that they either have you know connections, family, etc. You know, you know connections, right, to some uh, somebody else here in the UK. Um, you know. Uh, distant family, whatever, and the other one is um, close proximity or have, you know, worked within um, the uh, British system, uh, be it, you know, militarily, for example, you know what I mean, translators, that's why, you know, people from Afghanistan, that was a whole thing, right, um, when they were pulling out, there were like multiple translators trying to get here, why would they go to Italy, they don't speak Italian, you know what I mean, so people that come here, they don't come here because Britain's a beacon of fucking light. They come here because they have connections in some fashion to either Britain as a state or uh, people or British citizens, right? That's it. Um, they don't just come here for fun. I, well, hopefully not. I don't know. But, you know, think about it. If Just saying, just saying completely pass through other safe countries where they should have claimed asylum first. Why? Like, think, switch it up, right? Say if Britain was Syria level, just, you know, got leave, right? Um, would you go to France? No, probably not. I don't speak French. Uh, would you go to Sweden? Maybe. It's a good shout. They do speak English there. Well, see, French do as well, but, you know, you know, Sweden's a, I think they have English as a, you know, at least a second language. Um, and the and the Nordic states as well, you know what I mean? Denmark and uh, you know, Finland, Norway, all that stuff. Um, so that's a good shout. Spain, I don't know any Spanish people. I don't speak Spanish. I would love to. Um, but you know, it doesn't make it doesn't make sense, right? But anyway, let's continue. Um, making that um, riding on that one point. The government's justification for turning people away. Uh, oh, read that bit. Um, this logic rests on a shaky interpretation of Article 31 of the Refugee Convention, uh, which states that refugees should not be penalised for their entry, providing they come directly and show good cause. The international uh, right to... And this is the thing, right? Same. This is similar, very similar. Um, I'm going to make this... Well, it's not similar, but I'm going to make this comparison towards, like, someone... Uh, you know, transgender, right? Transitioning, right? That's a very tough process, as it is, right? In general, if everything was perfect, you know, if the system was perfect and allowed transgender people to, you know, transition and, you know, give them all the tools they need, it would still be a hard thing to do, right? And so is going on a small boat, dipping out of France, in the cold ass weather that it, it, it fucking snowed in parts of England today, okay? It's March, right? How do you think the Channel Island, uh, the Channel, uh, the, the Channel is, right? <laughs> the fucking waters are over there. Like, yeah, you know what I mean? They're not doing it for fun. And that's, that's I, I always ask that question. You think they're doing this for fun? You know what I mean? You think this is nefarious to risk your life like this? I couldn't imagine doing this shit. I couldn't imagine transitioning, you know what I mean? So if they really want to do this shit, 
fuck all the power to them because I don't have the I don't have the want to at all for that front you know what I mean I'd firm it but hey that's that's why and that's why you know we need these opinions and we need these um we need these stories on this front anyway uh, the international right to seek and enjoy asylum was first established by the Hu- uh, the Universal Declaration on Human Rights in 1948 and developed in the Refugee Convention of 1951. Crucially, these documents do not say that this right depends on applying for protection in the first safe country. International refugee law is difficult to enforce through legal mechanisms. It relies uh, instead on a sense of solidarity and surrogacy, whereby host states step in to protect refugees who can no longer live safely in their country of origin. The UN uh, Refugee Agency has emphasised this in a harsh critique of the bill, saying that it would not only violate the Refugee Convention, but would, quote, undermine a long-standing humanitarian tradition of which the British people are rightly proud. (laughs) I I discovered a show uh, recently called uh, Till Death, um, and then there was another one, a sequel, um, called In Sickness and in Health. Um, and it's basically um, a show that started in, I think, the 60s um, on the BBC and went, um, with along with the sequels, many sequels, um, went along to the mid-90s, okay? So a good 30 years, right? And it was all based around this character, I think his name was Alf, and it was this white guy, bald, moustache, right? And he was basically just, you know, your typical bigot. Um, conservative voter, you know, immigration, you know, Europeans, you know, you know, calling scarces gits and mix and probably, you know, Indian shit as well. Like, I'm pro- I haven't seen any episodes. I've seen uh, uh, my mum for fun just like saw it and she decided to watch it and she was like, this show was is horrible. <laughs> and it literally had a strip at the start saying like, this show contains views that are, you know, outdated, etc., etc., that people might find offensive. That's how bad it is, right? And um, it's funny because um, I, I, I wonder how that show lasted and all its sequels. I, I have to emphasize this wasn't one show. This was several by the same people. Um, and the creator was going like, oh, we're doing this to make fun of these people. No. You don't do this for 30 years. You don't do a uh, this kind of show for 30 years because people love laughing at conservative idiots. No. You got me fucked up. They fucking loved it and you fucking know it. Uh, and this is the similar thing. Like, they're proud? Humanitarian? You think British people are proud of humanitarian? Their humanitarianism? I beg to differ. Anyway... Legal challenges are on the horizon uh, for this bill, uh, should it receive royal assent. Many of these fall under domestic legislation and fundamental constitutional law principles, notably access to justice and rule of law. The bill states that people who arrive illegally can be detained for up to 28 days, quote, with no recourse for bail or judicial review, unquote, before being returned to their country of origin or a safe third country. Uh, But since leaving EU's Dublin regulation... The UK does not have workable arrangements with other countries to do this. Big ups the exit. Once again, once again, sticking his foot in, coming through the door going, it's me again. Love it. The UK does not have workable arrangements. Uh, it's Rwanda deal is the exception, uh, but this has been stalled by legal challenges and will no doubt require individual case assessments to ensure it meets uh, international obligations. Oh, do you remember the random thing? Still going. Uh, past cases have established that the Home Office must act in good faith and proportionately when detaining 
asylum seekers. Detention should be uh, for the shortest period possible and imposed as a measure of last resort. Home Office guidance establishes that victims of torture, children and vulnerable adults, including those subjected to trafficking, should not normally uh, be exposed to detention. Additionally, the Court of Appeal held in 2015 said... uh, uh, the Court of Appeal held in 2015 that the government's fast-track, said there, uh, fast-track procedure for asylum seekers, which usually involved a detention of less than 10 days, was unlawful because it interfered with the right to access advice and appeal against removal. There have been numerous cases where acutely vulnerable people were found to have been unlawfully detained. The government has preempted this by trying to remove rights of appeal. Uh, from the equation stating outright in the bill that those who arrive illegally do not have recourse for bail or judicial review. This opens up the second legal challenge based on the quote-unquote right to an effective remedy. When fundamental rights are impacted, outlined in Article 13 of the ECHR, uh, European Convention of Human Rights, this is often invoked alongside the absolute prohibition of inhuman and degrading treatment under Article 3 of the ECHR. The two provisions require legal access, require access, sorry, to a legal procedure uh, for someone to argue that return to their country of origin would constitute a quote-unquote real risk of ill-treatment. Article 3 is enforceable in the UK due to the Human Rights Act and provides a legal mechanism to respect the international obligation of non-refoulement, that people should not be returned to their home countries if they face threats to their safety. This extends to chain refoulement, which uh, is when removal occurs via an intermediary third country. Past attempts to oust the jurisdiction of the courts in immigration law uh, have, met resi- have, have met with resistance from senior judges. Um, there is an evident contradiction in the new bill as it states that those at risk of quote-unquote serious and irre- irreversible harm will not be removed thereby protecting the obligation of non-refoulement in principle. How this can be determined without a legal challenge is not clear. There are 45,000 small boat arrivals in 2022. Half came from five countries with asylum grants of 80 to 90%, meaning that they are incredibly likely to have their asylum cases recognised as valid. Even Albanians seeking protection have a 53% success rate at first instance. For many of these people, a number of whom are children, they cannot access a safe and legal route to reach the UK. The government's proposals would turn them away before their cases can, uh, could be considered. It is very clear from these statistics that the majority of those arriving quote-unquote illegally are indeed refugees and should therefore derive uh, derive full protection from the Refugee Convention, including the right to work, education and non-discrimination. As the UN response says, quote, branding refugees as undeserving based on a mode of arrival distorts these fundamental facts. Unquote. Global challenges of this scale require partnership and responsibility sharing between nations, not unilateral decisions that undermine refugee protection and fundamental rights. I mean, what else is there to say? What, what else is there possibly to say? This government is so callous. It really, it does, it boggles my fucking mind how bad this is. It really does boggle my mind how bad this is. Um, on the face of it, getting into nitty gritty of it, which some of this article did um, pretty well in my mind. Um, I don't have much else to say on it. I, I, I find it just yet another notch in the belt of how demonic this government can be. Um, I really thought, yeah, I really thought Pri Patel was bad, but fuck, like at least she didn't try and change to make <laughs> immigration in pretty much every facet, apart from you know 
if you got money, of course, right? You know, I'm sure Russians can still get golden visas and all that shit. I'm sure that's still a thing. Um, but, you know, actual refugees, people that actually need the help, um, shit, get fucked, pretty much. Like, it's unilaterally doing that and wanting to do that. The intent itself is demonic. Um, and I can't... I. I can't see this happening. I can't see this being implemented. But shit, man. I can't put it past these lot. So we hop into TV. And uh, this is built around the uh, recent uh, Chris Rock uh, live special on Netflix, um, Selective Outrage. Um, if you wanted me to talk about it, I did talk about it briefly on Digging in Digits as part of the lighter note. Um, I went on a kind of like 10 minute-ish rant um, about it. Um, but yeah, I didn't want to, I don't want to talk about it specifically here. Um, I have done so on DITD. So if you want to go spin my thoughts on it, go ahead. Um, but to be honest, um, they weren't that too well thought out. Um, I literally watched it literally at what, 3, 4 a.m. whenever it came out. So, um, yeah, you know, I, I didn't really have the most concrete thoughts. Um, uh, but, yeah, it was interesting, to say the least, and uh, requires, I feel, very nuanced conversation um, about a lot of things. Um, so I don't want to get into it, but I will get into this, which is um, about Netflix going into live TV. Um, so this is by Scott Bryan, it's via New Statesman, and it's called Netflix is moving into live TV and the BBC should be worried. Um, because I mean, imagining the BBC is a threat to anything these days is kind of farcical because, um, you know, the, well, the Johnson government especially wanted to just, you know, bin uh, Channel 4, privatise, was it privatise it? Uh, yeah, privatise Channel 4, and the BBC has kind of just been eroded in the past 10 years in a lot of ways, um, so I can't, I, BBC ain't even a player anymore in my mind, um, it's getting less and less, it's becoming less and less a player on the global stage, which I don't think um, Brits actually recognise how global BBC is, um, but I still feel like um, it's it's been dwindling, um, even even if even uh, if they, they are not aware of it, but anyway, let's jump home. There's nothing like live television. The energy, the unpredictability. The fact that you can tweet about the fleeting moment on screen and everyone knows what you're on about. The feeling that a live broadcast might go belly up any moment. But where else live, where else but live TV would you have found a bounce? A Labrador invited onto the BBC News channel with the caption Spokes Dog. Until now, uh, with the exception of some sports coverage, streaming services have ignored live television. But that might be about to change. Netflix announced this week they will show Chris Rock Comedy Special Live. And not only that, there's anticipation that he'll finally talk about being slapped by Will Smith for the Oscars in his routine, which will no doubt create big headlines, which he did for 10 minutes, and it was very, very uh, scathing. Uh, the special is being shown at primetime in the US, and so it won't be a suitable time over here, but Netflix's ambition is sure to make the BBC and its television rivals rather nervous. While Netflix has changed our view and habits forever, encouraging the rise of box set binges or the nostalgic re-watching of older shows there's one advantage to uh, the BBC and other traditional channels have over streaming services, the ability to create shared national moments at the drop of a hat. Sure, Squid Game and The Crown got people talking around the world and millions of people might watch a new Netflix show, 
uh, on any given night. But traditional TV has the same has the power of bringing people across the country together to watch the same thing at the same time. It's one of the best things about television, knowing that millions of people are engrossed in the same moment as you are. It's a power the BBC is well aware of too, shown most recently with its decision to broadcast the final series of Happy Valley Weekly rather than just release all the episodes at once. The streaming giants have become victims of their own success. We are now overwhelmed by choice. Scrolling through apps to find a show can be tedious. Not knowing if anyone else is watching the same show as you can make streaming feel like a soulless, isolated activity. I disagree. Um, I I don't really care if people are watching the same thing as me. Um, because if I enjoy it, I enjoy it. And, you know, while I say that, you know, I, I, I'd like for people to, you know, have the exact same taste as me. But, you know, people have acquired taste these days. People have... The, 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 the benefit of choice is interesting now. I, I, I'm fascinated by it. Um, and it gives people an opportunity to be more individual about themselves and find their tastes and find things that they love. And, um, you know, we don't all have to watch... Uh, we don't all have to watch EastEnders anymore. You know what I mean? You can, by all means, all power to you. You know what I mean? I respect, I respect EastEnders still. Um, I've watched it in over a decade, but you know, I respect it. And if people are still into it, they're still into it. All the power to you. But you know, I, I, I have different tastes now, and um, you know, and I can find them. Um, I know where to find them if I want them. Uh, I'm literally spinning uh, Bel Air at the moment, and I fucking love it i really fucking love it um been watching it with my mum and she really enjoys it as well so um you know that's all good but at the same time before that i was watching great british menu who's doing that who's watching great british menu and then watching bel-air like you know what i mean nobody nobody else and i, I like that i kind of like that anyway so i don't find it uh, uh solar so isolated to me personally i can get why people can say that but i like it um, but if Netflix or other streamers master live viewing, the impact could be huge. The BBC can, can create national moments. These streamers could create global ones. The challenge will be working out how to do it. Do they focus on live shows and events? Do they debut new dramas in live schedule slots, which they have talked about? And I have actually covered um, on What's Good before, a couple of years ago. Um, I think they were going to trial something in France, like a live TV schedule. Um, so this is not something. This is something that they, the Netflix, have um, mulled over um, and definitely thought about. Um, so you know, it's possible they can do that still. How do they stay accessible to viewers in many different time zones? Which is the big problem. How will they change the culture that they uh, that they ushered in? One in which you could watch any show at any time. The cost of living crisis has already resulted in millions of streaming uh, subscriptions being cut. So any wrong decisions could have major consequences. Like the password issue a couple of weeks ago, Netflix. Uh, but if Netflix masters live viewing, the consequences for the BBC would be extremely serious. Their collective viewing advantage and their hold over the national consciousness would be at risk. In that scenario, even Bounce the Dog could not help them. Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm, I don't, I don't know, I don't know. I'm kind of um, in the middle about the whole thing. Um, if Netflix, I don't, I can't imagine Netflix catering just to the UK audience like that. You know what I mean? Um, I, I, I just can't. Um, you know, having it's different for having you know Chris Rock do you know the most talked about comedian next to Dave Chappelle globally um, in the past years for obvious reasons, right? Um, having him do a live show is much different than. Netflix creating a show 
for for Brits to all watch at the same time instead of you know watching EastEnders at eight pm uh, or is it seven? I forget. See, I've, I literally haven't seen it that. Or I literally, it's, it's that's out of my mind now. I, I, I've, that's how long I haven't watched it. I forget if it was seven or eight. I think it's seven. But anyway, you know, I I just can't I can't imagine Netflix putting that much effort into catering to that. Um, now, live sports is a very interesting wrinkle um, because it's kind of the only thing that I can imagine um, myself tuning in live for. You know, obviously, I said I was, I was, I was up, I was just up, and I was like, "Fuck him!" I was just watching Chris Rock thing. So, you know, what I mean, I wasn't actively thinking about it. I just remembered it was on that night, and I wasn't, I wasn't sleeping, so might as well. But um, you know, live sport. I feel like a lot of people in Britain and everywhere. Um, depended on the sport, uh, will tune in. Um, you know, if if um if Netflix hypothetically um did the what Discovery Warner Brothers Discovery have done and have completely taken over um the Olympics uh, broadcasting rights over the BBC um and have um, literally thrown BBC a bone by le- allowing them to uh, stream I think two sports live at any given time, which is tragically depressing. Um, instead of the full smorgasbord that you can that you got previously um, in previous Olympics, um, if they did that hypothetically instead of Warner Brothers Discovery doing it, Netflix did it. Yeah, I'd be on Netflix. That that would that would get me. That would get me there. That would get me there definitely. Um, just watching every, everything live Olympics wise. Yeah, man, definitely, definitely. So you know, um, but that's me. Obviously, not everybody's into the Olympics. Um, but you know, if they if they got into football like Amazon Prime Video have done, shit, why not? Why not? You know what I mean? Um, I'm sure people have um, invested in APV just for just to get some Premier League games in. Um, I don't find it's worth it because they don't have enough games to show. Um, they don't. They're not there weekly. Um, but yeah, man, it's clearly there's an in there. There's an in. Um, same with um, baseball in America. You know, some they stream some games on Apple TV Plus. So, um, you know, I get that, but I just can't imagine Netflix. You know, doing just a regular show for UK audiences so they can watch it live. I I just don't feel like they would invest so much just just for us. I can't imagine it. Up in the film, and uh, this is about a, uh, a new film that's coming out. Uh, it's called uh, Rye Lane, um, and uh, I've seen a couple of trailers for it. Um, shout out to Blue Dad Beats, I think they're involved in some fashion. Um, I don't know if they did the music for it, or they're just um, making a cameo on the film. But um, it looks it looks nice. It, it's, I've seen a couple of trailers, it looks good. It's a nice rom com, um, and uh, it's based in um, uh, based in South London. Um, so yeah, you know, if uh, if you're if you if you're based in South London, you're gonna get some you're gonna get some places. You'll be like, oh my gosh, that's, that's that place. You know what I mean? So um, that's what the vibe is for. Um, but uh, I saw this article. Uh, it's by Steve Rose uh, via the Guardian, and it's called the Rom Com Effect. Will a new movie gentrify Peckham as Richard Curtis gentrified Notting Hill? And I saw that, and I was like, huh, interesting. Because I never thought about it. And I, well, I have thought about it because when I hear Notting Hill, I think of Carnival. But when I say Notting Hill to some other people, they think of the film. And the film is not like Carnival. 
at all. <laughs> you know what I mean? Night and fucking day. So, um, two Britons, should we say, uh, when it comes to that kind of a... Uh, 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 when you say when you say Notting Hill, people think two different things, and uh, that's two Britain right there. Anyway, um, so I was I was thinking about that, and I was like, and I was reading a bit of this, and I was like, huh, yeah, I don't know, because I like the idea of a of a place being romanticized, you know, what I mean, and used as a um, used as a tool for part of the film, you know, what I mean, everybody does films in New York, right, and. You know, there's plenty of shots of New York when you're watching a film. It's like, oh, New York. You know what I mean? And pretty much, that's pretty much Woody Allen's whole career, right? You know what I mean? Just like New York, a backdrop is a backdrop for these two awkward people. That's basically every Woody Allen film in a nutshell. Um, but obviously, New York is New York, and Peckham is Peckham. So uh, let's get into this and see what the argument is. It's always fun to see an area you know in a movie. So as Peckham local. The new rom-com Rye Lane is literally up my street. Um, it is named after the bustling main uh, thoroughfare of our South London neighbourhood, which is in the early stages of gentrification. African groceries and pound shops jostle up against new cocktail bars and art galleries. Go back 20 years and all Peckham was known for was working class wheeler dealing, uh, largely thanks to Holy Falls and Horses, and violent crime. And even our MP Harriet Harman wore a stamp vest when she visited in 2008. Today, Peckham is a hip, popular destination described by the New York Times as, quote, the beating heart of London's most dynamic art scene, unquote. And now we've got our own rom-com too. Ryan Lane is the, mo- uh, the movie is a very likeable variation on a very familiar formula, making Ryan Lane the place look somehow better and brighter on screen than in real life. Everything pops with colour as if it's had a new coat of paint. And I did see the trailers and noticed that. And I was just like, mm, you know, it's, it's giving Amelie vibes, uh, which will be mentioned here on this article. Um, I did do that on purpose, excuse me. Uh, everything pops colour. There's an absence of homeless people, drunk people, noisy school kids, traffic jams. Instead, there are quirky characters like a grey-haired rhinestone cowboy who body pops surreally across Riley Market as our love-struck couple, David Johnson and Vivian Oprah, Opara, sorry, uh, stroll through it. When I walked through the same market the other day, the local colour took the form of a shouting match between rival stallholders. Is the rom-com a cause for celebration, though, or more of a warning sign? Director Rain Allen Miller describes her film as a love letter to South London, but a love letter can also be a marketing brochure. From London to Paris to New York, edgy up-and-coming neighbourhoods form the perfect setting for movies about young people falling in love. But by drawing attention to these areas, these films risk accelerating the commercialisation that so often ends up destroying them. A cautionary precedent is Notting Hill, released in 1999, and the gentrification rom-com of its day. The West London neighbourhood, historically populated by immigrants, mainly from the Caribbean, has long been at the half-black British identity. But by the time of the film, it had become a fashionable, pricey destination, popular with post-cool Britannia types such as Madonna, Damon Albarn and David Cameron, and the screenwriter of the film, Richard Curtis. The kind of place where a foppish independent bookstore owner, played by Hugh Grant, let's say, uh, might conceivably bump into an American film star like Julia Roberts and spill his juice over her. I have not seen the film, by the way. Um, The film was shot on location in Notting Hill, 
but observers noticed how its streets were suspiciously free of black people, and instead, quote, wholly populated with mindless, twittering, wittering, lily-white rich, as writer China Meville put it. Meville, who uh, who was an extra in the movie and is white, described it as a, quote, uh, dystopian image of contemporary London after the triumphant rise of some unseen fascist authority, unquote. This is how gentrification operates. A relatively cheap area attracts immigrants and artists who bring it to life, which in turn attracts wealthier people looking to live in a lively area. This serves to raise rents and property values, pricing out the very people who made the area so lively in the first place. Before you know it, the artist studios are being converted into flats. The nail salon has become a craft sake brewery, uh, and film crews are scouring locations for a movie that attracts even more people, making the area even less affordable. It's happened before in London. Renée Zellweger's Bridget Jones lived in Borough, once a covered uh, covered food market and little else. Now a gastronomic hotspot and home to the Shard's multi-million pound apartments. It happened in Berlin, where fuck saying that rabbit without ears is the English <laughs> English name of it. I'm not saying the German one. Uh, became a huge domestic hit in 2007, just as the city was thrown off its post-war edginess and property rises were starting to rocket. And it happened in Montmartre. I uh, hope I'm saying that right. Formerly a rundown but proudly bohemian area of Paris, favoured by artists and jazz musicians. In 2001, along came Amélie with Audrey Tautou. I forgot I was saying that. Yeah, Tautou. Uh, f- flitting delightfully through a, uh, a Vion Rose tinted version of the neighbourhood, backed by accordion music. Again, director Jean Pierre Jeunet. Tarted, up the, tarted the place up somewhat, removing graffiti and parked cars and wringing as much retro colour out, out of his image uh, images as film stocks would permit. And again, the film was criticised for the lack of ethnic diversity seen around the area, unquote. Uh, quote is the next bit. It was already changing, but the success of the, this movie accelerated it, says Al Bain, a writer who has lived in Montmartre, uh, since the 90s. I wouldn't say it was a shitty area before, uh, but it wasn't all clean and tidy like it is now. In the 70s and 80s, it was so cheap, even the broke eyes could buy places here. But the prices have multiplied by 10 times since then, so those people either sold up or couldn't afford to live here. A new generation has brought new kinds of shops, clothes, boutiques, and food shops, uh, uh, unquote. Plus, expat foreigners seeking to live out the Amelie fantasy and hordes of tourists who can now take Emily-themed walking tours. Ugh, cringe. <clears throat> uh, the place where gentrification and the rom-com really hit off was New York City in the 80s. There you go. Uh, after the urban decay in white flight of the 1970s, the city was back on, uh, back on the up, a new demographic moving in. As always, uh, it seems uh, it started with the artists. Cheap rents on the Lower East Side attracted Keith Herring, Jean-Michel Basquiat, Generation, plus a coterie, as I say, of new wave musicians, punk students, queer people, bohemians. That drew the curiosity of outsiders and movie studios. For uh, for most of the 1980s, New York seemed to be the only place in America where anyone fell in love, judging by the likes of Splash, Working Girl, Moonstruck, Something Wild, Desperately Seeking Susan, an intriguing semi-queer variation, and When Harry Met Sally, not to mention Woody Allen. Wow, I did not read this bit, I swear. I did not read this bit. I did not. I did not go this far down the article. I am. I but I fucking called it. I didn't I? Not to mention Woody Allen, whose 1979 movie Manhattan begins with a self-aware voiceover. He adored New York City. Dot dot dot. He romanticized it out of all proportion. 
a town that existed in black and white and pulsated to the great tunes of George Gershwin, unquote. Outstanding. I can't believe I called that. That's great. In separate gentrification, these movies often processed edgy urban culture into mainstream commodity. Academic Johan Anderson calls it, quote, gentrification by genre, unquote. In his essay of the same name, he notes how the romantic comedy, quote, can bring the frequently downplayed, how do you say that, libidinous, libidinous aspect of gentrification to the fore, unquote. No longer a place of fear and anxiety, downtown New York became a place of youth, sex, and alternative culture, of potential adventure, upward mobility, social intermixing, random encounters, romance. It goes without saying that in almost all these films, the central characters are all white. And as with Notting Hill or Emily, people of colour are generally reduced to the status of background set dressing. Only a few filmmakers address gentrification from the opposite end of the telescope, including John Singleton, Lawrence Fishburne, gives a forceful lecture on the gentrification of Los Angeles in Boys and Hood, and Spike Lee, whose films of the late 80s and early 90s effectively chronicled the gentrification of his beloved Brooklyn, is there and do the right thing? Quote, who told you to buy a brownstone on my block in my neighborhood on my side of the street? Unquote. Uh, Giancarlo Esposito demands of the white proto hipster who has just run over his brand new Air Jordans. Quote, uh, another quote, what do you want to live in a black neighborhood for anyway? Motherfuck gentrification. Unquote. The white hipster turns out to have been born in Brooklyn. Ironically, despite its grim conclusion, do the right thing still made Brooklyn look like an attractive place to live. Other young, white hipsters would follow. Ryan Lane shares something with Lee's work, and that is centred on two people of colour who have grown up in the area, which according to 2017 data is 71% black, Asian and minority ethnic. There are a few white characters in the film at all, and for a change, it's their turn to be the window dressing. Like the body-popping cowboy in Ryan Lane Market. There is also a double take inducing cameo by a certain rom com A lister, no spoilers. And once again in Ryan Lane, it's the artists who are the, in the vanguard. The obligatory meet cute takes place in an exhibition opening at Peckham Levels, a former multi story car park that now houses a gallery. It could be seen as the ground zero of the district's gentrification. The car park was built in the 1980s to serve the Sainsbury's supermarket next door, which later closed, it is now the beloved Peckham Plex Cinema. It was about to be knocked down, but in 2007, a non-profit group named Bold Tendencies campaigned to turn the top floors of the disused uh, structure into an art space, plus a rooftop bar, Frank's, with a spectacular view over London. The lower floors are now studios, workspaces, bars, and a food court. Combined with the neighbouring Bussy building, that's that, that's an amazing name, Bussy. <laughs> Bussy building. Oh... Alright, <laughs> compose yourself, Charlie. Fuck. A converted 19th century factory housing a similar mix it has become an appropriately gritty cultural and leisure hub. Quote When we first started uh, working in Peckham, everybody who came talked about Only Falls and Horses, said Sven Mundner, uh, Mund, Mund, uh, uh, regeneration expert and lecturer in spatial practices at Central St. Martin's School of Art, who co founded Bold Tendencies. Another quote. There wasn't a single journalist that didn't make the reference. Peckham's renaissance didn't quite come out of nowhere, he says. The car park changed something, absolutely, absolutely, uh, but it also coincided with the opening of the Overground, a new rail line connecting South and Central London, which opened in 2012, and there was an underlying artistic community anyway. Peckham was never not a place where things happened. 
Unquote. Situated between two ma- major art schools, Campbell and Goldsmiths. I've actually been to Goldsmiths. I went there for a film event one time uh, while I was in sixth form. Um, long story short, I fell asleep during it. And um, yeah, it was a bit embarrassing. But anyway, uh, the area has always been home to students with an artist, including Anthony Gormley, who designed a distinctive bollards. Local people call them the butt plugs. Amazing. <laughs> what do Peckham residents think of all this? When I asked around on the streets, most were delighted to see the area celebrated on film and were happy that it changed for the better. Quote, in the 80s, it wasn't like this, says Denise, a market stall holder in her 60s, originally from Guyana. You used to get a lot of killing and stabbing. At certain times, you never used to want to be on the street. Now you can walk free, unquote. Obi, an education worker in his 30s who grew up there, agrees. Quote, we had friends from other areas whose parents wouldn't allow them to come to Peckham. It has changed for the better. Some people would call it gentrification, but gentrification is everywhere now. It would be nice to get some property or something, though. I don't want to move out of the area, but I can't afford to buy a house, unquote. Property prices have been rising precipitously. In 2019, Peckham had the fastest house house price growth in the UK, having risen more than 1,000%. That's not standard. Like, literally a thousand percent. Like, not a thousand and one, not 999, one thousand percent since 1995. And more than doubled in the previous 10 years. Long term residents and artists are already selling up or being priced out. It is possible to have regeneration without gentrification, says Moondana, uh, who points out that local groups have successfully organised to preserve historic structures, fight off intrusive developments, although there are still plans for a 27 story apartment. 27-storey apartment towers at one end of Rye Lane and retain civic spaces such as Peckham Levels. Quote, What makes places different is the level of emotional investment, how people invest themselves in the place other than buying money, he says. Do they engage or do they just consume? I know lots of people who live here who really have their heart in Peckham, unquote. It is difficult to imagine Peckham turning into the new Notting Hill anytime soon, but if it does, how much could we blame a movie like Rye Lane? Is it possible to celebrate a place on film without selling it at the same time? Unquote. Uh, quote, there's a responsibility in the filmmakers' court to be careful and to be aware of what they're doing, says Mundner. Uh, but if they are really showing their love for a place, I think it's one of the best things a film can do. Unquote. I agree. In a perfect world, uh, the, per- the people who brought the area uh, through the bad times would benefit. The sterilising effects of gentrification would be mitigated and everyone would would live happily ever after in sensibly priced homes. But life doesn't always turn out like the movies. So yeah, it's, coming in the, it's dro- dropping on the 17th of March, and um, I might give it a spin. I might give it a spin. I'm not really a rom-com dude, um, but it does look kind of... It do, it's nice to look at. It is a meet-cute thing. I'm not, I'm, not, um, I'm not against that kind of thing. I'm actually writing a script um, as a... Purely as a exercise if anything i'm basing it um i'm basically transcribing a book and making it into a script version of it um so yeah i'm not like you know plan to you know sell or anything but yeah it's it's a, it's a nice exercise and i really enjoyed the book and it is technically like a meet cute in that sense um a little bit less comedy element but just more like yeah just like raw raw romance um but regardless of that um yeah i, I fuck with it i fuck with the look of it um I'm, I'm into it but i do understand that yeah you know you you'd you'd want the perfect the perfect thing of like not having it you know uh making it the not in hill of peckham right and just uh 
having oh white people like i just hope hopefully white people don't love this like uh, you know hopefully some white people like it right you know by all means have your fun um but hopefully not enough to inspire them to just like you know take over the fucking spot <laughs> and uh, and you know gentrification is a very um a very layered subject um it's not just because people watch Notting Hill that Notting Hill you know uh, got uh, became what Notting Hill is now um but you know it 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 doesn't it helps it definitely helps the gentrification process go through um but yeah anyway um 17th of March go peep the film if you're feeling it support some support some black art support some black love some rom-coms um, because uh, yeah, you know, ready get ready get a decent rom cover these days. So uh, why not for a change? So we finish on. Uh, music and uh, I had to divert um, briefly. I had to while I was recording, I was trying to hit up the piece I was originally gonna hit um, that was more directed at um, De La Soul's uh, release of their new music. Um, but instead, because I couldn't get on the article, um, I had to scramble and find another one. And I still wanted to talk about De La in uh, some fashion. So I found this piece as um, uh, kind of just a more of a commentary commentary um, on uh, the death of uh, True Goy the Dove, um, who died uh, February twelfth, and obviously this coincides with uh, their music uh, that I you know reported in, in a week where um, the music are on streaming. Um, so go get that you know go get your spins go get your spins in. They lost souls dead. Stakes is high. All that stuff. Balloon mind state. Beefy High and Rising, and also the others as well. Um, they're all on there now, and um, I for myself can't wait to um, you know spin it all. Um, I haven't done so yet. Um, I'm waiting. I'm probably gonna do it for a well, definitely gonna do it one day for a DITD. Um, obviously, since we're doing Women's History Month, um, we're gonna hold off on it for a bit. Um, so sometime, hopefully in April, uh, we'll get that in. And uh, yeah, I just want to dedicate a week. You know what I mean? To just spin in them. Um, yeah, I, I can't wait for that prospect. But for now, uh, we'll talk about um, uh, De La Soul co-founder True the Dove created Legacy and Evolved Hip Hop. This is the article name. And it's uh, by Jacqueline Schneider. Uh, this is via Forbes. So let's jump right in. David Jolicoeur, uh, founding member of Legacy Hip Hop trio De La Soul, died Sunday, February 12th. Specifics on Jolicoeur's uh, uh, cause of death have not been shared. However, he was diagnosed with congestive heart failure in 2017, which he publicly opened up about recent years. He was 54. Shared in an exclusive report by allhiphop.com uh, during the evening of the Super Bowl. Uh, news came out leaving the group and their management understandably at a loss for words. Eight days later, no official statement has been made by De La Soul until today as co-founder Vincent Lamont Mason Jr., a.k.a. Maceo, or Plug3, broke his silence by posting a photo of the day the group signed their now infamous contract with Tommy Boy Records in 1988. The post on Maceo's Instagram today came before he shared a picture of Plug 2's medallion with the phrase since 1988, and after he shared a video of funny toddler of a funny toddler to bring levity, levity to tragedy, quote, considering everything that I'm going through with the loss of my big brother Dave, 
this clip actually brought some, excuse me, uh, some laughter and joy to me this morning. I hope it does the same for you, unquote. Over the past week, the global hip-hop community felt the gravity of its loss as detailed stories and three decades worth of photos capturing the essence of Jollico's power, Jollico pulled in uh, across the internet, mirroring a th- through line of youth. They La Soul has been the soundtrack for not only hip-hop lovers, but the fans of music at large since the late 80s in every part of the world. Long-time BBC Radio, Radio 1 presenter Benji B, known for, his, known for elevating global hip-hop, electronic and soul sound since 2010, through his weekly radio show productions and touring DJ rotation, paid homage to Trugo the Dove on his latest show. Weaved together for maximum impact, melancholy and discovery, as only Benji B seamlessly could. The, tri- the tribute is a sonic journey through a small fraction of the group's genre-defining classics. Quote, I'm not sure I'm going to be able to find the words to describe what De La Soul mean to me, because they are cer- there are certain artists, certain groups in life that transcend the ability to be described because of how they intersect with a particular point in your life. In a particular time of your musical discovery, Sinch Benji B, the contribution truly cannot be overstated. Unquote. Dave Starr was uniquely subtle and powerful in what he wore, how he rapped, and the feeling he left people with through his craft and kind-hearted charisma. His untimely passing arrives weeks before De La Soul's entire back catalogue makes an appearance on streaming platforms after a drawn-out legal battle with former label Tommy Boy Records, where the group's music has been stuck in an analogue limbo for decades. Following a 2021 deal with Reservoir Media, De La Soul's six classic albums will be available on streaming platforms March 3rd which obviously you guys can get into now. Formed in Long Island, New York, De La Soul completely evolved the global sound and image of hip-hop, incorporating masterfully sourced samples, comedic skits, peace sign, filled wardrobes, and carefully selected lyrics delivered in the most playful way. Creating a new lane for hip-hop, one that juxtaposed the suburban uh, reality of the Long Island trio, a rich sonic history lesson peering through the lens of academia on each record, and an implied optimism of what the future of music could look like. De La Soul's contributions to the genre are priceless. As music journalist Mossy Reeves describes it, Dave, quote, helped revolutionise hip-hop and changed the course of popular music, unquote. Departing from the gangster rap discourse of the late 80s and early 90s with Free Feet High and Rising, produced by Prince Paul, De La Soul pushed the boundaries of sound using samples from, quote, more than 60 other recordings, including not only Funkadelic and higher players' grooves, De Rigger in uh, 1980s rap, but also oddities like sound from old TV shows and recording of French language lessons, lessons unquote. As reported by Ben Cesario of the New York Times, this uh, new sample format for music set a precedence for rights holders and the music industry at large following a $2.5 million lawsuit filed against De La Soul and Tommy Bill Records for using a four-bar sample of the Turtles' You Showed Me on Transmitting Life from Mars from Free Feet High and Rising. The group was a force recognised the world over, as they continued to tour while unable to monetize their extensive back catalogue, with Dave's loss felt around the globe. Tributes written in German, Finnish, Italian, Japanese, Spanish and Swedish have all surfaced. Damon Albarn, co-founder of the UK-based band Gorillaz, who worked extensively with De La Soul, even going on to win a Grammy together for the Gorillaz Feel Good Inc., posted a sombre, tear-inducing piano tribute for Dave on Instagram today. Culture writer Oliver Wang explains De La Soul's impact through the lens of Yassin Bey, formerly known as Mos Def, for NPR. Quote, Brooklyn's Yassin Bey, formerly known as Mos Def, who idolised De La Soul as a teenager, explained to me in 1999, they weren't weren't just arbitrarily creative, they were really intense with mad thought and focus. No one thought hip-hop could be like that, unquote. 
Dave Also has been the soundtrack for generations of hip-hop fans, an inclusive musical glue for disparate groups across race, class, gender, and social status, and an open invitation to explore the depths of truth about oneself. Quote, You, sir, shall be remembered as a class act, a gentle giant of an MC, and one of the architects of this iconic institution that we call hip-hop music and culture, said Blackthorpe the Roots. And we shall leave it there. Um, yeah, it's, um, it was a... It is still um, just a loss, you know. And uh, like the article that I was going to read uh, hinted at, um, it's bittersweet. It's um, extremely bittersweet to have this uh, just... Just they spent so many years, so many years doing this and trying to get their music out of the analog and into the digital, you know what I mean? Into the digital world. They tried so freaking hard and then just weeks before, just weeks before it was it was all gonna it was all gonna come to light and we could all celebrate De La Soul and its wholeness and its authenticity and its creative flair. Trigoy kicks the bucket and it's just, uh, yeah, it's just, um, well, I, I can't think of a, <laughs> I literally can't think of a better word than bittersweet because it is simply the definition of that. It is bitter, sweet as fuck, man. It's just to think about. Um, but thankfully, his, uh, his art, goes on his art lives in for us now to consume and uh i'm sure Poss and maceo will you know continue flying the flag for Daylar um for the rest of their days and after them it'll be the plenty of the myriad of fans um that have uh either grown up with Daylar soul or like i will soon rediscover Daylar soul and uh, I can't wait for that moment for myself personally. So with that said, ladies and gentlemen, I'll finish there from the 5th M Podcast Network. I've been Charlie Taylor and it's been what's good. Intro music has been Too Much by Vanilla. Thanks to Chiop Music for BC's track. You can find their links in the full show notes. And thanks to Nappy High for his charis- for using charis- for allowing me to use Charismatic for an interlude. You can also find his link in the full show notes. There we go. <laughs> I hope you all have a good week. I shall always try and do the same. But until the next time, take it easy, ladies and gentlemen.